So, her talk today is called, Will the True God Please Stand Up? Most of you probably know, are familiar with the 1950s game show, To Tell the Truth. Um, who's heard of that? Some? Okay. Uh, so, some haven't. Um, so, in the 1950s, there was this TV show, and actually, it seems like back then, the game shows were a lot more intellectual. They were a lot more like quiz shows, like trying to figure something out. Um, and they would have, uh, they would, it was a guessing, guessing game show. So it would be like, they would introduce three men, for example, and say, these, and each man would say, I am Jim Hamstra. And only one of them would be Jim Hamstra. So each one would say, I am Jim Hamstra. And then there would be the three people or four or five people who were trying to guess who is the real Jim Hamstra. So they would give him a little background, you know, he lives in Colorado and this is what he does for a job, blah, blah. So then they would ask questions. They would interview these three men and try and figure out who's the real Jim Hamstra and who are the imposters. In fact, interestingly enough, for those of you who know who the preacher um, Doug Batchelor is, his mother was on this show one time. So if you dig deep on YouTube, you might find that to tell the truth where the question was, who's the real Ruth Bachelor, um, and you can see what she looked like. So eventually everyone would come up with their guesses and they'd guess I think number one is Jim Hamstra and I think number three is Jim Hamstra. And then they would finally ask the big reveal question, will the real Jim Hamstra please stand up? And then for dramatic effect, there would be a little bit of a pause and all the three men would kind of look at each other and look at each other. And finally, Jim Hamstra would stand up and, and everyone would go, oh, because some of them were right and some of them were wrong. Some were imposters and some were real. In Bible times, there were over a thousand gods just in the area where Israel was. There were Assyrian gods, and there were Babylonian gods at different times. There were Sumerian gods. There were Egyptian gods down in Egypt. There were Canaanite gods. And later, there were Greek gods, and there were Roman gods, and there were Viking gods, and there were Hindu gods. And you and I could probably sit and make a list of a hundred gods that we've heard the names of. Um, and there was little tiny Israel just stuck there on the map among all these larger groups of people. And there was little tiny Israel saying, we know the true God. We have the right one. All the others are not, not real. All the others are imposters, and we have the real God. And it's kind of like the whole world has been asking for centuries, will the real God please stand up? We've heard so many names. We've heard so many mythological stories. We've heard so many explanations. We almost don't think that there is a real one. Maybe they're all fake. Maybe they're all imposters. Um, now, in Egypt, God did some pretty dramatic things to try to introduce himself and to kind of be that one that was standing up and saying, I am the one true God. Even introduced us to his name at that point. In Egypt, I've read that in an encyclopedia that in Egypt alone, there were over 2,000 gods, which I can't even imagine. Apparently, the Hindus have 10,000 or even more than that. I couldn't even make up that many names to come up with that many gods. But um, in the, I feel like the book of Exodus and really the whole Bible was written to answer 
the one question that is brought up in the book of Exodus. When Moses came to Pharaoh, um, is this, oh, I have to turn it on, right. Yes, I think it's on, oh, there. Okay. When Moses came to Pharaoh and told him, I have spoken to Jehovah, I've spoken to Yahweh, and he has said that you need to let his people go, and we need to go out and worship him. And Pharaoh asked the question that's really burning in all of our hearts, whether we realize it or not. This is the question that the Bible was written to answer. Pharaoh said, who is Jehovah? Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? I've heard of Osiris, I've heard of Ra, I've heard of, you know, all these others, but who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice? And really, that's the question. Who is Jehovah? Who is this true God? And why should I trust him? Why should I follow him? Why should I give my life to him? Why should he be number one? Can I, who is he, and can I trust him on the throne of my life. So some pretty dramatic things went on in, um, in Egypt at that time as God was trying to introduce himself and show that he was the one true God and the others were imposters, just like on the game show. The Bible points out the way I was told this story always made me feel like the plagues that God sent to Egypt were to punish the Egyptians and make them feel some pain for following idols, for following false gods. But there's some really beautiful verses in the Bible that kind of give you a different perspective and put a different, different slant on it. In Exodus 12, 12, God said, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Jehovah. I am the one true God. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And I have to do all this dramatic stuff to show up who are the imposters because you have been so soaked in believing in these idols and these imposters for so long. In Numbers, when Moses was retelling the story, he explained on the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. The Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. These plagues were the battle of the gods. It was, the, it was to tell the truth. It was who is the real true God and who are the imposters. The Egyptians, according to this encyclopedia, had over 2,000 gods. And so God specifically addressed the powers that they thought these gods had and showed that he was the one who truly ruled over everything. He was the one who truly had the power. So the first plague that he sent was the Nile turning into blood. Well, the Egyptians believed in the god Osiris and they had this whole story about how Osiris had been killed by another god and cut up in pieces and thrown in the Nile and all his body fluids had emptied out into the Nile and the Nile was actually Osiris's bloodstream and when it when it flooded every year and made the the soil fertile that was Osiris's blood providing food for them 
So they actually believed that the Nile was a bloodstream and God gave it to him. He let them have what they believed in. And they saw that Osiris's bloodstream really wasn't all they thought it was cracked up to be. When God sent the frog plague, they actually had a frog goddess, Hecate, who had the face of a frog. God showed that Hecate did not have the power over the frogs. He had the power of the frogs and he sent them and he took them back at his will. Selkit was the healer of stings. You can see she looks like she has something like a scorpion on her head. She was the healer of bites and stings. And the Lord sent lice or some, some translations say gnats and showed that she didn't have the power over bugs and stings. Um, he sent a plague of flies. The, uh, the Egyptians actually made amulets out of flies. They believed that flies brought them good luck. They believed there was power in flies. They also had Kepri, this insect god that had a scarab beetle for a face. And you can see this other picture. These cobras with arms are bowing down and worshiping a scarab beetle. They worshiped insects and bugs. <laughs> and... Um, and he sent the, the plague of flies, and he showed that he was the one who had power over the flies. They had Hathor, the cow goddess. She was always pictured with two horns like a bull coming out of her head. The Egyptians worshipped cows. The, the Israelites um, made a golden calf and worshipped it after they left Egypt. And the Lord sent a plague on the livestock and on the cows and showed that Hathor was not the one who had the power over the cows. She couldn't protect her cows. He was the one who had power over the cows. Sekhmet was the goddess of healing who they would have turned to for the boils that some of them got on their skin. And God was again showing that these these idols were powerless. These idols were nothing. He was the one with the power over every area of life that they thought that these gods had power over or, or provided for them or took care of them. He was the one who did. Um, they had Set, the god of storms, and God sent hail. And, saw that, and they saw that Set was not the one who controlled the hail. He was not the one who controlled the storms. But the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, was the one who controlled the storms. They had Geb, God of the earth. And the Lord sent locusts that ate up all the plants off the earth. And they saw that Geb was not the one who had control over the earth. Do you see how this was the battle of the gods and how the Lord was showing one by one, these are imposters, these are imposters. I am the one true God. And finally, they had Ra. He was the deity of the sun. And God blanked him out. I mean, there was complete darkness when the sun should have been shining. He showed that he was the one who had power over the sun. He had power over Ra. Ra was nothing. He was, he was made up. Um, when my kids were younger, um, they both spent some time in Pathfinders on the PBE team where they did Bible quizzes. And they, each team had to basically memorize a book of the Bible. And my daughter's first year, the book of the Bible that they memorized was Exodus. So she memorized eight chapters of Exodus and the whole rest of the team um, memorized the rest of it. And then they had to study Exodus and know Exodus and memorize it. And then they had to go to these competitions where they answered 90 very specific detailed questions about the book of Exodus. So we were immersed in Exodus for months preparing for these competitions. And... Um, 
we really wanted the kids to see beyond just memorizing it, but we really wanted them to see God in it, to understand the story, understand what was happening and what it meant to them. And so we got to the plagues and I thought, you know, it's easy for, it's easy to see these plagues as just God's hammer coming down. Um, and I really wanted to set it in a different setting for these kids. So one of them named Austin, not my Austin, but one of the other kids was Austin. He was about to have a birthday. So I showed them all these pictures of gods, just like I showed you. And then I asked him, Austin, what if when your birthday is coming up, your mom, because she loves you so much, what if she baked the most delicious chocolate cake ever. What if she took the time to make you a cake and she frosted it with really creamy frosting and on your birthday, she put it in front of you and, and gave you this cake for your birthday. And what if you took a bite of it and took your piece of it and you were eating your cake and it was the most moist, delicious chocolate cake you'd ever, ever had. And then what if you stood up from eating your chocolate cake and what if you walked over to the oven and you thanked the oven for your cake. What if you said, oh oven, thank you so much for this wonderful cake you've provided for my birthday. I just loved it. And, and what if every day you came to your oven and you thanked the oven for the food that you ate that day? And what if when you had problems, when you were hungry, you went to the oven and you prayed to the oven and you asked the oven, please oven, I'm hungry, I need some food, will you please provide some food for me? I said to him, Austin, what do you think your mom would do? And he, with a very dramatic personality, he used his whole body and he acted like he was holding a bat and he, she said, I think she would smash the oven. And I said, yes, yes she would. That's what the plagues were. God was smashing the oven because they th were worshiping the Nile. They thought the Nile provided food for them. But he wanted them to know, it's me. I made the Nile. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who made this for you. I'm the one who's taking care of you every day. I'm the one you can ask for when you need something. He was smashing the oven. So in the Bible, I've noticed that... Um, God simplifies things, which always helps me, down to two things that the prophets point out specifically as setting God apart from idols, as characteristics that show that He is the true God and idols are worthless, are nothing. So I'd like to share those two things with you today and kind of talk about what they mean to us. The, um, I'll just read some passages and you will start to see what the first thing is. Here's an Isaiah. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. I kind of like the sarcasm here, like... You have these idols, and really the best thing they can do is not fall down. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of heaven and earth, of all the earth, sorry. You'll see this theme again. The gods of other nations are mere idols, but here's what sets them apart. 
the Lord made the heavens. Jeremiah said, but the Lord is the only true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Say this to those who worship other gods, your so-called gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will vanish from the earth and from under the heavens. But the Lord Jehovah made the earth by his power. Do you see? Do you see the theme? You see what he's pointing out as what sets God's apart, God apart as the real God? Idols are worthless. They are ridiculous lies. On the day of reckoning, they will all be destroyed. But the God of Israel is no idol. What sets him apart from idols? He is the creator of everything that exists. In, the, in Nehemiah's time, the leaders of the Levites called out to the people, stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And you'll see this many times in the Psalms or other places where people are praying, and they want to point out specifically who they're praying to. Then they prayed, may your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. How do we know? You made, made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. When Hezekiah was praying, he did the same thing. Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. What sets them apart is God. You alone created the heavens and the earth. The first thing God points out over and over and over again that sets him apart from idols and shows that he is the true and living God is the fact that he created. He is the creator. It's not a small incidental thing. It's a big deal in God's mind that he is the creator. The earth is not your mother. The earth is a gift from your creator. The same one who created you created the earth for you, as a gift to you. And yes, we get nourishment from the earth. Yes, we get food from the earth. Yes, we get beauty from the earth. Yes, we get oxygen from the plants that grow out of the earth. But the earth isn't doing that for us. The God who made the earth as a gift to us did that. It, there's a, an important difference there. Why is it important to know that God is our creator? We, if we sat and put our heads together, we could probably come up with a big long list. But I'll just have a couple things to point out to you. One is that when you know you have a creator, when you know that you came from intelligence and from purpose and intention, when you know that you're not just an accident, a happenstance, you automatically start your life and your existence with your most basic human emotional need met. You are not empty. You are not alone. You are not just an accident. You are born in relationship. Do you see that? It's really important for our psyche to know that. You are born in relationship because you came from someone who wanted you. You are already wanted. You are not isolated. You are not alone. You aren't just left to figure this out for yourself. You have someone who wanted you, who made you, who designed you, who cares about you, who's walking with you. Those ba that basic need is met immediately. And God wanted us to know that you are born already in relationship. 
not just doesn't just give you personal relationship, but knowing that you have a creator also gives you personal value. You are not worthless. You are not just a bunch of cells. You have personal value. And these two things, to know that we are in relationship, to know that we are wanted, to know that we have value, that we don't have to prove our value to anyone. We are born with value and worth. Those are fundamentally important to our own psychological health and our own emotional well-being. Those are things that are quickly stripped from us by the pain a sinful world causes and and the whole counseling you know industry is has been created to help people come back to heal in these areas and to realize that they are in relationship that they are valued that they do have personal worth um, that there is a reason for their being so it is vitally important that we recognize that God is our creator also God is the only one who has creative power. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about substitutes and the imposters in our world. But it's really important. He pointed out over and over again that these idols do not have creative power. They cannot make something out of nothing. There's only one who can. Someone who is above us and who made us and who loves us and who guides us. So the first thing that sets God apart as the true God. Oh, here's the verses, yes. Oh, I love this one. The personal value of having a creator. This is what God says. This, these are the words, the heart of the creator. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's how you start out. You stick your own name in there. Stick your name in for Jacob. Stick your name in for Israel. This is God speaking to you. Because you have a creator, you have all this value. You belong. You don't have to fight to find your way to belong. You belong. That's why people join gangs. They're longing to belong. But when you know you have a creator, you already belong. There's someone who knows you, has called you by name. And this creator... This is his heart. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. That's where you start out when you know your creator and you know that God is the real God. He is the creator. The second thing that God points out when he juxtaposes himself against idols to show that he is true and they are false is this. Let's read some verses and you'll see it come out. Isaiah, remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. And here it is. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. This attribute of foreknowledge that some Christians don't like to swallow, God points out as one of his attributes as God that no one else has. And this is one of the things that sets him apart as the true God. Present the case for your idols, says the Lord. Let them show you what they can do, says the king of Israel. Let them try to tell us what happened long ago so that we may consider the evidence or let them tell us what the future holds so we can know what's going to happen. Yes, 
tell us what will occur in the days ahead. Then we will know that you are gods. True foreknowledge, true ability to know the future, is an attribute only of God, and it sets them apart as the true God. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say my images brought them about. My wooden image and metal god ordained them. See how he's setting himself apart? I'm the one who can tell the future. This is what the Lord says: Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first, and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no god. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. If there's another god, let him stand up. He's saying. If there's another god, let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. If you can do that, truly and accurately every time, that is an attribute of God. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No. There is no other rock. I know, not one. And Jesus, Jesus himself said to his disciples, "I tell you this beforehand. I'm telling you what's going to happen before it happens, so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah, because only God can tell you the future. God has the ability to prophesy. God has the ability to tell you what's going to happen." In the Bible, and you could make a much longer list than this, I'm sure. There are several prophecies that have come true, and the fun ones are the ones where the Bible said something would happen, and then for a long time, historians and archaeologists said, "No, it never happened because we've never found any evidence." And then they do a dig, and then they find out that yes, it happened just like the Bible said. Those are the fun ones. Sennacherib of Assyria would not take Jerusalem. That was a prophecy. Jeremiah said. I know you see Assyria coming. I know Sennacherib had, had said he's going to turn you into mincemeat, but God says that Sennacherib is not going to take Jerusalem. Now, it might be hard for us to put ourselves in that position and understand how totally unbelievable this was. But Assyria was huge. If you look at a map at this point, Assyria had already taken Israel; was gone. It was just little tiny Judah. It's like this little tiny dot. On this map, and you look at Assyria, and Assyria is like this. Like Assyria has taken all the land around little tiny Judah, and little Jerusalem is in there. And here comes Sennacherib with all his armies, and they were Assyrian. The Assyrian armies were something to be to make your knees knock. They were vicious. They were powerful. They had they had mastered the art of the siege. They had refined the art of conquest. They believed that they had to do conquest every year, or the world would end. So they did this all the time, and nobody, nobody, didn't fall when the armies of Assyria came after them. And sure enough, Sennacherib went home without taking Jerusalem. It was absolutely impossible. But that's what the prophecy—that's what the Bible 
prophet had said. Um, the Bible prophesied, God prophesied that there would be a three-year drought in Israel, and there was. The Bible prophesied that there would be a seven-year famine in Egypt, and there was. Ne they pro the Bible prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar would build a siege mound against Tyre, and many nations would come against it. And you read um, the history of that, and that's what happened. Um, the Bible prophesied that Jerusalem would be rebuilt under the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and it was. And in the book of Daniel, the most amazing long-term prophecies, um, the Bible prophesied that the Babylonian Empire would be followed by the Persian Empire, which would be followed by the Greek Empire, which would be followed by the Roman Empire, and the Bible prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ahead into the future. God said that you know that I am the Lord, I am the true God, because I can tell you what is going to happen. God's foreknowledge is part of his being the true God. That's what he points out when he compares himself to idols. I'm your creator and I can tell you the future. How is this important to us that God can tell the future? Well, for one thing, when he does let us know the future, it really gives us personal preparation. I don't know if you know the story of, um, his last name is Hazel and he wrote a book called A Thousand Shall Fall. He was a, uh, um, a German man during World War II, he lived in Germany, he was a Christian man. And even though he was in his 40s, I believe, he was drafted into Hitler's army. And he did not uh, want to fight for Hitler. He did not want to fight at all. As a Christian, he had a very strong conviction against killing. And he was forced to go into Hitler's army. And instead of killing, he decided to take a piece of wood and whittle it into the shape of a gun. He painted it black and he kept that in his holster. He never carried a gun and he never killed anybody as a soldier in the Nazi army. But his um, group was fighting um, on the Russian side of the war and they were behind enemy lines in Russia. And at one point his commander sat him down with another commander, two of them, asked him, do you think Hitler can win this war? And he asked if they could take their hats off because that was a sign that this is an unofficial conversation now and I can't be held responsible for anything I say. So they all took their hats off and he told them, I do not believe that Hitler can win this war. Hitler will not win this war because I read Daniel chapter two and I saw that Europe is never united again. It's always divided. And that's what Hitler's trying to do. He's trying to make his empire and he's trying to unite Europe. And so I know from the Bible that Hitler will not win this war. So they took him, they listened to what he said because it was fascinating how he explained the Bible prophecy and showed them what it said in the Bible. And so they stockpiled gasoline because they, just in case he was right and Hitler was going to lose this war, they were deep into Russia and if they lost, they didn't want to become POWs in Russia. So sure enough, Hitler lost, the, um, Hitler surrendered, and it was announced to them. And because they had stockpiled all this gasoline, they were able to get all of their troops and all of their vehicles out of Russia before that closed and they would have become POWs in Russia. So there was personal preparation because of what the Bible had prophesied, because God had taken some time to let them know what was going to happen in the future. It happened when they were taken into Babylon as well. Jeremiah told them, settle down, plant, build houses, pray for your captors, you're gonna be there a little while. Well, that was good to know. Otherwise, they might have lived a different way, but God prophesied and gave them some personal 
preparation. But knowing that God knows the future also gives us a sense of personal peace because we don't know the future. And sometimes when we start to live the future, it can feel tumultuous. When storms come and we're not quite sure how this is going to work out, knowing that God knows the future, knowing that he holds our tomorrows in his hands and he's not taken by surprise by anything that happens in our lives, but he's prepared for it because he knew it was coming, gives us a sense of personal peace. Isaiah kind of put them both together. Oh, here's personal peace. Um, in Psalm 139, he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. There's the creator. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In another place it says, you know what I'm gonna say before I say it. Knowing that God knows what's ahead can give you tremendous peace. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. That's a beautiful picture to me of when I awake, now I'm in the future. Now I've started tomorrow. But God is already there. God knows what's coming in my future and he is ready to walk me through whatever it is. So not only does he give you a sense of personal preparation because when he lets you know what the future is gonna be holding, but he lets you know that you can have peace no matter what is going on. Nothing has taken him by surprise. God is the true God because he is the creator and because he is the predictor. Now, I have come to really appreciate the name of this denomination. I did not grow up in this denomination. And when I first heard the name of this denomination that we're sitting in here today, Seventh-day Adventist, I thought, well, that's not pretty. <laughs> it doesn't sound pretty. <laughs> if someone was a wordsmith, they probably would have come up with something that sounded a little more poetic or a little nicer than Seventh-day Adventist. But I've been looking at it through this lens through different eyes. And, uh, and I know that when the people who were naming this denomination sat down and wanted to come up with a name, it wasn't just um, flippant, that people prayed and people considered and people sought the Lord and they landed on this name Seventh-day Adventist. And now I'm looking at it and saying, Seventh Day, that points us back to creation, to the Creator, points us back to our Creator. and. Adventist points us to the second advent of Jesus, to the prophecies, to the, the predictor, the predictions of God and what he's promised for the future. Here in this name of this, de this denomination, the Lord almost seems like he was bringing people back to the basics. Maybe that was something that had been lost in all the, um, what was it called when people started intellectualizing the Bible and I can't remember what it's called, but but there was a period of time where we needed to be brought back to the basics of who God is and our faith and trust in his word and his word alone. God is the true God. And even the name of this denomination points us back to the fact that he is our creator and he is the one who can tell us the future. So we need to beware. <clears throat> Oh, in Isaiah, he put them both together. For the Lord is God, and he created the heavens, 
and earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, he says, there is no other. I created. And one verse later, consult together, argue your case, get together and decide what to say. Who made these things known so long ago? What idol ever told you they would happen? Was it not I, the Lord? For there is no other God but me. Now, when you read your Bible, this is going to stand out to you. And you're going to notice how many times God points out the fact that he is true and idols are not because he created and because he can tell the future. So, of course, we have an enemy in this world and the world offers us many substitutes, many imposters for these ideas, um, for the idea that we have a creator, we have an alternate um, theory of how the world came in to be. We have um, even ideas of reincarnation or that we continue to live several lives. There isn't just a creator that made us and we live for him. Um, we have, in our culture these days, we have new ideas that make us the creator and make us not need a creator. We have the ability to, to um, manifest and attract whatever we want. We can create with our own thoughts and our own powers. We have alternate days of worship. We have other things that we look for to give ourselves a sense of personal value instead of the fact that God made us. We look to success. We look to education. We look to outward appearance. We look to the opinions of others. There are many things that we fill that God-shaped vacuum in our hearts when really God's pointing us back to the fact that we need to know that he's our creator. And that's where our personal value comes from. There are substitutes for telling the future as well. There are substitutes for finding personal peace, um, different forms of meditation, or looking to psychics or astrology, or your own personal premonitions make you the predictor of the future. Um, we look to uh, addictions or to wealth or to other things to try and fill that need for peace that we have. We make ourselves God. We don't have idols in our culture anymore, but we make other things idols, or sometimes we make ourselves gods, and, and we are told that we have that creative power, and we have that intuitive power to know the future. But God is calling us away from idols, and he's calling us back to know that he is our creator, and he is the one who knows the future. He is our source of value. He is our source of peace. Um, 25 years ago, Jim and I, um, got married in Colorado Springs and we went to Maui for our honeymoon. And last week, because it had been 25 years since we had stood and made those vows to each other, we went back to Maui for a week. And it was really, really special. Um, and one of the things that we did while we were there was we drove the road to Hana. Um, it's a long, windy road. There are over 600 curves on this road, but it goes on the wet side of the island through rainforest, and it is absolutely stunning. It just takes your breath away for as many hours as you take going down this road to this little town of Hana at the end of it. There are several waterfalls for you to get out and see. You keep stopping to look at the, the lava rocks and the ocean and just all the beauty that's along this road. Well, before we uh, decided to drive it, um, we ran into another couple that was celebrating their 47th anniversary because they didn't know what the world would be like 
by the time they hit 50, so they wanted to go now. So they were celebrating their 47th anniversary, and they had just done it, and they told us about an app that we could download on our phone where this man would guide us through this whole tour on the road to Hana, and he would tell us ahead of time where uh, there's a waterfall coming up on the right, the parking's on the left over here, so make sure you do this. There's this coming up, you might see people stopping, but if you're limited on time, that's not really worth seeing, but up here, when you get to this town, these are the restaurants you can eat at, so it was really helpful. He just walked us through this whole road to Hana. And he also told us a whole bunch of Hawaiian history. Um, and so I learned something from him that I didn't know before. So I have not gone and studied the history of Hawaii. I'm just repeating to you the story that he told us on this app. So I'm trusting that it's accurate because I'm telling it to you. So what he told us was that, you know, there's these different Hawaiian islands and they were ruled by different kings long ago. And there was a king on Oahu that decided he wanted to um, take over all the islands. And he, he did. He went and made war with island after island, killed lots of people, took over all the islands, and he was the first king to unite all the Hawaiian islands into one kingdom under one king. Then um, when he died, his son wasn't quite in a position to take over yet. So one of his wives, not that son's mother, but a wife, she, um, she took power. She put on his cloak and she took power and she made some changes in their culture. There, there were some rules for women that apparently she didn't like. They had a lot of rules of different foods that women couldn't eat. Only men could eat bananas. Only men could eat certain things. And she did away with those rules. Women could eat everything. And she also went through and got rid of all the idols. He didn't say why. I don't know why she did that. But she tore down the idols in Hawaii. And it was very soon after that that European Christian missionaries came to Hawaii. And he said, he was not coming from a Christian perspective at all, but he said that the missionaries found the people in Hawaii very receptive to their story and their message about one God who was not an idol because she had already gotten rid of the idols. And he didn't put it this way, but us, uh, Jim and I were just going, wow, that's amazing. I, the Lord prepared Hawaii for the gospel and through this woman. I don't even know why she did that. Um, but it's really important. God is calling us to take our eyes off of the idols, to tear down the idols in our lives because that prepares the way. They're standing in the way. They're standing in the place of his creatorship and his sense of value in our lives and his holding our tomorrows and the peace that he brings us. When we look to other things, eventually they totter and fall. But God is the one who gives us our value. God is the one who gives us our peace. In Egypt, when um, <clears throat> God was preparing to make this bold statement and take down idol after idol after idol and let the Egyptians and the Israelites know that he was the one true God that they could put their trust in. Before he did that, Moses had a meeting with all of the Israelite elders and all of the Israelite people. And he told them, he and Aaron together, told them what God had called him to do. And they, um, they showed him some, the miracles. They showed him the turning someone's hand into leprosy, and they showed him throwing down the rod and it turning into a snake. And it says in Exodus 
that when Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses, he also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. He performed the signs, he showed them some miracles, and they believed. But it didn't stop there, and I love the fact that this verse does not stop there, and I cling, I love this verse so much. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. They saw something spectacular. They saw something attention-getting. They saw the miracles, the signs, and they believed. That was enough to give them intellectual assent. That was enough for them to embrace a belief. But when they saw the heart of the one behind the miracles, when they saw that he cared about them, that he was concerned, that he saw their misery, then they bowed down and they worshiped. Then that took them from intellectual assent to heart surrender. That took them from truth to worshiping God in spirit. That took them from, from believing to bowing. And I believe that the Bible was written and these, this information, these facts were given, not just so that we could intellectually know that God is real and that God has made the earth and that God can tell the future, not so that we just have intellectual knowledge, but because God wants to be known. Because if we're gonna experience the peace and the sense of value and everything that comes from that knowledge, we have to see the heart of the creator. We have to see the heart of the one who knows the future. That is the one who has loved us with an everlasting love. That is the one who gives us complete value. That's why he created us, because he loves us. Not because he wanted someone to lord it over, but because he wanted someone to love. So I invite you, when you read the Bible, to go beyond seeing the signs and believing to seeing the heart of your creator and bowing. So today, may you have confidence that you have found the one true God, your creator, the one whose hands formed you and who made this beautiful world for you. And who, know, and who treasures you as his own child. The one who knows the end from the beginning and holds your future in his hands. May you live each moment knowing that you have infinite value and you are not walking through life alone because he is the one true God. May you believe and may you bow.